Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Seville in Spain. What an amazing city. What brings me to Seville? The annual World Travel and Tourism Council's Global Summit, which is essentially the G20, if you will, in the world of travel. Every major CEO, Fortune 500 executive, every owner, every operator, air, sea, land, rail, they are here. It's only a three-day summit, but a lot gets accomplished. Even Barack Obama's coming to speak, for better or worse, but uh, world leaders are here and they're talking. For the last 18 years, uh, I have produced a special series of global television specials called The Royal Tour, featuring heads of state, where I actually go to, to sitting kings, presidents, or prime ministers and get them to give me six days of their schedule unencumbered. And then during that next six-day period, I'm not the tour guide. I'm the, gu- I'm, I'm the tourist. <laughs> and the head of state is actually my guide through his or her country, seeing it through their eyes. And the most recent royal tour, which premieres on many PBS stations this coming Monday, April 22nd, is Poland, the royal tour. And I'm joined now by the prime minister of Poland, my tour guide, Mateusz Morawiecki. How are you, sir? Peter, it's a great pleasure to be with, here with you. You know, as I said to you when we, when we first met, 
when I grew up, I was watching Poland mm. on black and white television. And then even when my parents got a color television, it was still in black and white because the images that were being projected from Poland were not necessarily uplifting. They were gray. They were bleak. It was Soviet domination. Uh, so imagine my surprise, and the surprise of so many of my other friends who were travelers, when I went to Poland, it was like, my God, it's not like that at all. You had a radical transformation. But it was like that when you were growing up. Yeah, it was, it was like that. To understand Poland, we have to actually go back to the, the one specific date almost exactly 80 years ago, 1st of September 1939, when Poland was invaded by Germany and by the Soviet Union, and everything changed since then. Because six la years later, Poland was not on the right side of the Iron Curtain, so to say, and we could not have appropriate impact on our life. The, uh, Poland was part of the Soviet Empire, and, and this is why you saw all this in black and white and rightly so, because it was not only a very inefficient economic system, but it was also a system full of violence and fear and a totalitarian system. In a, in a way, you had a society that never thought they could because they weren't allowed. They were not, not allowed and, and uh, lots of uh, opportunities uh, for development have been wasted during the 50s and the 60s. And during those times, many Poles uh, were actually actively fighting for independence uh, because uh, we knew that independence is a prerequisite for a normal development. This is why uh, my grandfather fought during the Second World War and my father fought against communism uh, during the 60s and 70s. And you too. And, and later on, I, I joined the so-called Fighting Solidarity Organization. And but Fighting uh, Solidarity didn't mean you were fighting. Fighting, were not fighting, fighting nor not violently, not with weapons. Uh, fighting was, uh, the, the, the weapons of those times was uh, predominantly leaflets and newspapers and um, uh, books printed uh, where uh, we presented the true history and the and, uh, and, uh, mm, uh, features of the mm, uh, communist system from the economic point of view and free market. So we, we kind of were teachers for the society back then. You were the king of the mimeograph machine. You, uh, were you, you, were you might say so. I, I was actually printing hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of those leaflets hour after hour. But the police caught you. Oh, many times, yes. I, and uh, this was not a very pleasant uh, experience because I was beaten many times. Uh, there were lots of police people in my um, home. They were trying to exert pressure on my family, um, uh, threatening us with uh, lots of very, very nasty things. And I had three sisters, so I, I have three sisters, and I was uh, very much in fear of, of their fate. Exactly. And at the same time, you weren't even seeing your father for most of this time. No, no. I, for, for all of the 80s during the martial law and when he was hiding uh, in underground, uh, I, I was not able to see him because it would be very dangerous. I was, I was simply um, interrogated quite often and, uh, and uh, I was... It became uh, almost like a theater. Uh, well, <laughs> right, it, was a, it was a dance. Not because a pleasant you knew you'd get caught, <laughs> they'd interrogate you, then they'd release you, and you'd do it again. Yeah, but when I uh, stood in front of very important exams in my life, we, which is at the in Poland at the end of the high school, I had to, so to say, inverted commas, hide in the hospital because I knew that they were going to uh, take me to the two-day arrest just for the days of the exam so that I could not pass them. So my mother 
uh, took care of this, and he, together with our aunts, they put me into hospital. I was I was quite healthy back then, but <laughs> <laughs> I had to spend a couple of weeks. Uh, and then you weeks stuck out and took the exams. Yes, and and directly from the hospital, I was uh, I was taken by the ambulance to the exams. <laughs> But let's go back before 1939, because one of the other things I discovered in researching this project, uh, the Royal Tour of uh, Poland, is that you have a rich 1,000-plus-year history. Yeah. You were a kingdom. People forget there are more castles in Poland than anywhere else except Wales. I mean, you got, everywhere <laughs> I look, there's another castle. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. The, the region where, which I come, come from, uh, so-called Lower Silesia, east-western east part of Poland, there are many, uh, every village has a castle, you might say. So a very rich history. Uh, we, we also are a little bit boastful saying that, but, but which, is, which is quite true, that we were, um, together with the United Kingdom probably, we, could, we should share this honor, uh, the inventors of democracy, because we, uh, we had a, a same, which is the first parliament in the um, 15th century, in the 16th century, it developed a lot. And um, the biggest po part of the population, of Polish population, was actively taking, uh, actively participating in democracy during the 16th, 17th, and the 18th century. Of course, when you talk about castles, then you have something you have to defend. And everybody was invading Poland. I mean, oh, the, yes. every, I mean even the Danes, the, 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 everybody showed up. The, 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 the Swedes, the Germans in particular, the Russians, of course, the Tatras, Mongols, uh, started in the 13th century with uh, Genghis Khan. The po Poland, uh, geographically, is placed on the so-called big, uh, great European plain. So it's easy, relatively easy to invade it Everybody from the west. Everybody went through Poland. Everybody went, went through Poland. And uh, we were kind of uh, uh, effective and efficient in, in, in defending our independence for 800 years. But towards the, uh, the end of the 18th century, three superpowers of those times, Prussia, Russia, and uh, the Austrian Empire, uh, attacked us at once, and we uh, surrendered. Oh, we, we, we actually were conquered. I mean, to me, looking at the World War II history, you know, you had the Warsaw Uprising, you had the Jewish Ghetto Uprising, but what was amazing to me was that you won, and then the Soviets captured you. Yes, well, like, uh, it's not entirely true to say that Poland won the Second World War because we were completely destroyed, completely no, I'm devastated. I'm about the uprising against the Germans. Yeah, well, the, the, ger the yeah. uprising uh, was also not successful because the, first the Germans, one, yes. the, the first one the, the in the Jewish ghetto, and then the second one, which was even bigger, was also not successful. But from the point of view of our uh, national identity, uh, and national are, pride. And, and national pride, they are extremely important. The Stalin, uh, Red, uh, Stalin's Red Army stopped at the Vistula River during the Warsaw Uprising because they didn't want to help Polish patriots to fight against Germans, which was, mm, which was very uh, uh, hypocritical, you know. Hypocritical, hypocritical. Yes. Um, But uh, this is why the Germans defeated us in the, in the uh, August and September of 1944. Well... Many, many years later, the map still hasn't changed, has it? You're still where you are. You still have Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, you're bordered by a lot of interesting neighbors. <laughs> yes. All of whom have had a history of coming through Poland. But these days is different because we have uh, democracy. We have uh, restored peace in Europe. And the European Union is a very good thing. 
uh, those in America or in some parts of Europe who wish the European Union to break down, to fall apart, uh, do, not sh do not wish the transatlantic community well, because the European Union is not, an e not, not easy to, to for, for many participants, but it's the best what could, uh, could happen for, for Europe. And this is why we work hard to maintain, to preserve the stability and unity of the European Union as a partner in the transatlantic uh, community. And I could not think of a better um, uh, community uh, than the United States, Canada, and, and the European Union. So what uh, you're together. saying is you're better together than alone. Absolutely. United we stand, divided we fall. Exactly. We're talking to Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki of Poland. And when we come back, I want to talk about what we did together. Because you okay. took me all over the country. Uh, and we did see a few castles, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Usually get them on the phone, somewhere on a, on a cell phone, somewhere on the planet. But now I actually have them right here in person. Is the is the CEO, president, and head dishwasher at the United States Travel Association, Roger Dow. Hey, Peter, it's great to be with you as always. A lot of dishes to wash these days. <laughs> Indeed, one of the things that happens at this summit um, is looking at the real numbers, the hard numbers, not just U.S. numbers, but global numbers. But global numbers affect the U.S. Mm -hmm. What's your takeaway? From, from this summit? My takeaway is that this industry, the travel and tourism industry, is continuing to be one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Uh, one of five new jobs are coming from this industry around the world, and it's, it's so important. That's why countries like China look at travel and tourism as a pillar for building their workforce and creating jobs. Uh, but I also think that's a good news, and the bad news is a huge labor shortage. I'm very concerned about getting the workers to work in hotels and restaurants. First of all, you know, it's, and you talk about in the United States. Right. Because, look, if you go to a restaurant in Italy and you sit down at the table, there's a 95% chance that that waiter who's serving you, that's his profession. That's his it's, 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 it's job he loves to do or she loves to do. That may not be the case in the U.S. No, the U.S., uh, many times our servers are people that are on their way somewhere. Might be a student going to college, might be somebody in between jobs. And so it's probably split. There's probably 50% of the waiters, waitresses are full-time and the other are on their way somewhere and short-term. So they don't have that career and that long-term training and that uh, will to serve, so to speak. So what's the solution? More education possibilities at the university level or what? I think the solution is uh, getting people to understand that this travel industry has a tremendous amount of opportunity. I don't think there's a high school teacher in America that's talking about you should become a, a travel and in industry executive. You should be a lawyer, a banker, a fireman, but they don't talk about it and they don't understand this is one of the biggest industries in the world. And we've got to get that fact down there that this is the way you can build a career and build wealth for your family. Now you talk about shortages. Where are you seeing the shortages? Uh, we're seeing them everywhere. Uh, the uh, the big cities, uh, areas where technology is big, uh, the wages are much higher uh, for entry-level people, so they'll go elsewhere. Uh, the finding uh, summer resorts, uh, the ski resorts, uh, don't have enough people to operate the lifts. In California right now, they've got enough snow to be open almost all year round, but not enough people to work the lifts. Well, that's a lift crisis. It's a lift crisis. You got it. <laughs> No, but how do you fix that? Because are, are they being priced out? 
I think they're being priced out, and uh, I also think there's not the uh, understanding of how you can come in, work at a front desk, and all of a sudden, 10 years later, be running your own hotel. Uh, I don't think people look at this industry as long-term. I think a lot of people look at, oh, it's the, the school job you have or whatever. And I think we've got to teach people that there's such a big opportunity here. And I think we've got to look at immigration. I mean, let's face it, uh, we've got to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform because uh, we do need the workers in this industry. Industry. It's very labor-intensive. Well, you've got an immigration crisis worldwide. You have an immigration crisis right here in Europe, where we are in Spain or in Poland or in France or in Germany. They haven't addressed that. You have a Brexit crisis where people don't even know, you know who they're reporting to, so mm-hmm. to speak. And then you have the immigration policies of the United States government, which are at best right now confusing. Yeah. And the other shortage when I talk about jobs is I think we're going to face a huge pilot shortage. Uh, one of the challenges that is happening is the, the long-haul pilots that fly these big planes across the oceans uh, are all retiring. And there's not the pipeline because... Uh, well, you know where the pipeline used to be, and, and you and I are both old enough to remember that, the pipeline used to be in the military. Sure. I mean, you go into a cockpit of a plane 20 years ago, and you just ask the guy, who'd you fly for in the military? And they tell you, I flew an F-4 for the Marines, or I flew an F-5 for the Air Force. The military is not the job recruiting agency that it used to be because a lot of the military in terms of aviation is drones. You have gamers out there uh, operating uh, drones all over the world, but they're not producing the pilots that the airlines need. Well, not only that, a lot of those pilots came from regional carriers and all that. And the regional carriers, quite frankly, a starting pilot doesn't make a lot of money. It used to be, you know, a huge amount of money, but there's been pressure on wages. So those people coming out of the military are saying, I'm going to go elsewhere. So they're not even starting at the regionals. Right. So how do you fix that? Same thing. I think we've got to uh, get people to understand it's a career. They've got to increase the pay levels. Uh, I want the most experienced person in the cockpit. You're I mean, no kidding. Look at what's going on with that whole uh, 737 MAX. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's a combination of technology and pilot training. Well, what it really gets down to is forgetting the technology. Pilots earn money when they fly the plane, and they need to know how to fly the plane and how to override the system. Continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Quite, quite an assortment of newsmakers, and one of them is joining me now. She's the Minister of Tourism of Greece, Elena Contura. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. You know, I'm going to start off with a little bit of history for my audience, and that is, if you, from a business perspective, if you mention the word Greece. What you hear is failed economy. You hear they defaulted on their loans. It's, it, it's, a, it's a country in total disarray. And that's what you hear. And there's no doubt about the fact you had a financial crisis. You're still coming out of that. But what you don't necessarily hear is if you take a look at what your portfolio is, which is travel and tourism, you guys have never had a better year. I mean, you guys have literally turned the corner Give me some of those numbers because they're staggering. Well, first of all, I have to say that Greece, of course, went through difficult times. And that's why our goal was, uh, you know, to improve our economy. And uh, tourism was uh, the sector that really did a small miracle, as Mr. Dr. Taleb Rifai says. Um, It's uh, really uh, impressive because the last four years we had this policy, this strategy. And each year we had two million tourists more. Uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, and of course 2018 was the historical record of more than 33 million tourists in Greece. If you think we are just a small country of 
10 million inhabitants. It's, it's a huge number. And of course, a huge historical record for the revenue, more than 18 billion euros for um, uh, the uh, tourist sector, but uh, direct and indirect, it's 20% uh, of our GDP and it's about 38 billion euros. Now, you just said saying that was a staggering figure in and of those figures, and that you said 20% of GDP. Exactly. If you look at the World Travel and Tourism Council's figures, on a global average, travel and tourism is only about 10.4% of global GDP, so you're double. Exactly, and this was really the big, big success of Greece with a great strategy that we really follow step by step each year. Public sector and private sector worked great together, and that's why all together we achieved this big performance in tourism fingers, and it's very important because it was the driving force for our economy. So we can do economic, social policy. You're a member of the government. What did you have to do internally to convince the government that this was a good idea to push this? Well, I think uh, in Greece, we're very lucky. My prime minister, Alexis Tsipras, and our government was the first Greek government that realized the value of tourism because it's the driving force for other sectors also to grow, such as transportation, trade, entertainment, real estate. Uh, it's really important for the governments to understand uh, that they have to put tourism in very high in their agenda because it's really a very productive sectors, sector and can really push uh, all the economy and the most important thing, create a lot of jobs. Our unemployment from 28% that we got in 2014, 28% unemployment. 2014 was 28, dropped down to 18% in just four years. And tourism was like 70% the reason. And it's very important to think about that tourism also, it's a great sector for women, for young people, for new business, for new revenues. And it's also a sector that uh, brings peace and prosperity. And we should not forget that because because people that they travel, they are open-minded, they become better people, and they make this world a better place to live. Well, short of starting to sing Kumbaya, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have to stop you there. I, let me do the devil's advocate question then, and that is this. Ministers of tourism, not just you, but your, your counterparts in almost every country in the world, live or die by the numbers, right? Number of visitors, average visitors stay, average visitors spend. But at a certain point, what, what's a little scary is if the numbers take precedence over common sense, right? You can't have 33 million people in just two months. Of course. You have to figure out a way. Otherwise, you know, the, the big bad word, we've been talking about it for a long time, over-tourism, right? You and I have both been in the bar of the Grand Britannia, over looking up at the Acropolis, right? And seeing that line of people snaking up the hill every day. That's that's crazy. So what did you do about that? Well, that was really a big, big uh, goal because uh, our first uh, step of our policy was to extend the season, to introduce Greece 365-day destination because, of course, we're very famous for our sea and sun and the beautiful summer, but Greece is such a wonderful place with such a huge history and culture. So we create thematic products to make sure that we will introduce new Greek destinations so the tourists will enjoy through the year. And at the same time, we open up new markets it's new, uh, like India, um, uh, China, people that they travel a lot, uh, all through the year and all over the world. So it was really a great strategy that led us to uh, be very popular and uh, 
as a destination through the year. And it's really, the numbers again are incredible because we increase winter tourism the last three years more than 40%, which was great. So 2018, I can say that we really achieved our goal the 1st of January 2018 till the 31st of December 2018 was a golden year for seasonality. So we broke seasonality and this was very important. And I'm a big fan of saying there should be no seasons. I mean, I see that now in airfares. It used to have just seasonal airfare sales. Now, it's all, with the exception of maybe a few particular holiday periods, it's all year long. Yes, and, and you know what? Uh, plus, this... you have, plus you have airlift that you didn't have before. You, you have Emirates flying from the United States Absolutely. nonstop to Athens. This was another goal, the operational, I would say, strategic uh, deals and a lot of negotiations that we did with big tourist uh, 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 um, companies. Uh, companies and also uh, big airlines and also low-cost airlines. So we brought more than 2,000 uh, flights last year and make the difference. Sustainability, important. Don't forget that word, sustainability, all over Greece. And of course, all this big demand uh, mobilized uh, a lot of investments. So we had this huge booming of investments for 400 more four and five star hotels and resorts. Unbelievable. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I've said this so many times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it again. I, I remember when like ecotourism was an overused and misled, misleading word. Now we have sustain, sustainable. Most people can't define it. My next guest can. He's uh, Professor Daniel Kamen from University of California, Berkeley. And your exact title, which is too long to read, go ahead. I'm a professor and chair of the Energy and Resources Group and former science envoy for President Obama. Which is why I had you read that title. <laughs> Define sustainable travel for me in, in a way that people can not only relate to it, but they can actually embrace it. Well, I think that sustainable travel and sustainable tourism is really the effort to go see the world, but to make it no worse off and ideally make it better than when you started your right, there's the, the old line, leave only footprints, I got that. But how conscious are we becoming, and, and I would assume you'd argue that's a necessity, so that that actually happens? Well, it really is a necessity. We know that we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions worldwide more than 80, perhaps 90 percent by mid-century, and travel as one of the fastest growing industries on the planet is a place where our footprint is often very apparent from ocean settings to rainforests to the Arctic, and finding a way to do that in a way that really does leave no trace and ideally helps to sustain the communities there is really the goal. All right, so I'm going to be devil's advocate. Can we really depend on Americans 
to ask the right questions? Well, I think it's not just about Americans. It's about really can we all ask questions that are based on our desire to connect with each other, which is what the heart of travel is, sure. but to do so in a way that we're learning from each other from the largest nations to the smallest communities and treating that process as one where the equitable and the just process is part of the deal. And that means preserving not only pristine beaches, but also critically endangered species and indigenous communities. I guess it gets down to connecting the dots, and I'll give you an example. I went out to Midway Island about 10 years ago. And as you know, when, when the United States Navy left, they left the, you know, Fish and Wildlife took over, and they did have a rule at one point that like only 100 people could be on the island, which was amazing, because they left the military base exactly the way they left it. If you're looking for footprints in the sand, just turn around, because you're the only one who made them. That's great. But as I walked along the beach, I had no choice but to connect the dots, because I came upon bir dead bird after dead bird after dead bird with their carcasses and stomachs open to reveal what? You already know the answer. The answer is plastic. Plastic. Uh, the six-pack holders, si plastic cigarette lighters like you could not believe, and that's what killed them. Well, so the whole process of finally recognizing that we can't live in a throwaway society and we can't continue to pollute the bellies of whales and fish and sea turtles with kilos and kilos of plastic is one of the many angles of sustainability. It's one where the youth right now are really in the lead. Everything from plastic straws to how do we clean up the tropical gyre, those are all stories of improving the environment and doing a better job than past generations. And yet we see time and time again when somebody comes and takes the lead ostensibly and say, okay, we're going to ban single-use plastics. So no more plastic straws or you know, swizzle sticks. Okay, it, it, we can relate to that because we know what a plastic straw looks like. We know what a swizzle stick, it's been in our lives, right? So if they're not going to offer it to us at the bar, we might not even ask for it anymore. Okay, great. But is that enough? Well, it's certainly not enough by itself. But the idea that we can have a better quality of life and pollute less is actually something we've seen over and over again. In the Montreal Protocol, we found that by getting rid of CFCs, we could actually save money and do a better job with deodorants and with fire extinguishers and things. And we're seeing the same thing with plastics. People now routinely expect to bring their own bag to the grocery store, to not leave it on the beach. And that process is really one where we're learning that less footprint is actually better quality of life. Okay, so devil's advocate question number three, I suppose. Are they bringing their own bag to the grocery store because they don't want to pay the five cents or because they're environmentally committed? So I'm actually not sure it matters. There's lots of different motivations to get you to yes. And the biggest one is recognizing that you can do a good job, you can enjoy yourself, and you can feel better about how you treat not only the environment, but also other people. You know, when my dad was going to medical school, as learning to be a doctor, they had a course at Columbia called Products and Processes. They don't teach that anymore. And they would take the medical students once a week to a place where they made automobile tires or refrigerators or things that we just take for granted in our daily lives so that not only one, they could understand how it was made, but they could also listen to the patient and understand maybe if somebody worked at the tire plant, what might have caused his problem, right? I believe today they should take kids to landfills. I mean, that should be, your, that should be the school outing. Well, in fact, it is. We have professors of anthropology at UC Berkeley, where I teach, who do landfills, dumpster diving as a way to understand our culture. It's an interesting process. We learn about the things we throw away. We learn about what we value. We learn and, about methane gas. Well, we do quite a bit of that, and we've learned how to capture methane gas. But more broadly, there's been a movement across the United States and Europe to really think about the cradle to grave, the life cycle of every product. And 
And that mentality has been fundamental in transforming how we think about regulations for plastics, how we deal with problems like the Flint, Michigan water issues, and in particular, how much of a footprint we really do leave on the natural world, even very far from our homes. I'll give you an ironic story, and I think you'll appreciate the irony. You know, we're going through right now the investigation of the 737 MAX jet, right? And most Americans, and I understand this, don't know the difference between an aileron and a Greyhound bus, but now they've heard the word 737. So nobody wants to fly a 737. I got that. But Kayak, one of the search engines, is now creating an option now. When you go to book a flight, it'll tell you the kind of plane you're flying on. Wouldn't this also be appropriate to do the same kind of thing as saying when you go into the store, this is the the kind of bottle you're buying? Well, in fact, there's a whole number of websites that allow you as a customer to go into a grocery store, a pharmacy, and to get the impact of that product. Not only what it's supposed to do, but what materials is it made from, what are the impacts of the environment from either mining materials or refining or making the pharmaceuticals. And that kind of sustainable consumerism is a process that we used to think was a contradiction. Now we're seeing there's ways to harmonize what we do product-wise with the natural world. I mean, I go back and and my friend Costas Chris and I've talked about this all the time. The, another irony, right? You go to a hotel and there's a plastic card. I always love it. It's a plastic card on your bed saying, please help us save the environment by not washing your towel. I'm saying, the card's plastic, right? Not only that, they haven't connected the dots with the guests so that they understand what we're really doing in terms of how much phosphate are you using in those huge washing machines down below that the guests never see to wash that towel. They haven't really connected the dots. Plus, the cynic in me, of course, says, well, they just want to save $10 and therefore why would I want to do this? I paid money for this room. However, when you can connect the dots and then you can follow that $10 to a, to a local source where it really makes a difference, when they save that $10, that makes all the difference in the world. Well, that's, I think, really where good consumer culture and sustainability can come together. We don't need to waste more and more products. In fact, we have resorts around the world. We have entire states and countries that are committed to the zero waste culture. And that's an aspirational goal at this point, for sure. We're a long way from getting there. But it plants the seed. On a small the scale, seed. there are a lot of hotels that are actually doing it all. Absolutely. I mean, they really are. And it's, it's part of this transition. I just wish that people my generation and older were catching up to the youth today, which are really interested and committed to this kind of change. All right, you're talking about your generation and older. So where have you caught yourself in making a mistake? Well, my teenage daughter catches me all the time. Whenever we go in the bathroom to brush our teeth, she always says, like, Dad, you know, we don't leave the water running when we brush our teeth. But I remember commercials when I was a kid where that was how you sort of timed what to do. My daughter's generation, not the way to do things. Speaking of water running, and this is a big hotel issue for me, I'm in a different hotel at least every week, right? And it's the shower. Because when I turn that faucet on, I have to wait sometimes four minutes for it to get hot. That's water that's all wasted. So this is, again, part of doing better and doing good. Tankless water heaters, way to heat up water quickly without Instant having hot. to waste. There are, there are ways to do that, and they weren't a priority until we started to think about the mixture of the environmental impact and the financial benefits of getting away from that waste. I mean, the irony, again, is I don't care how many flow restrictors you have on that are performing to municipal codes, if the water still has to run five minutes before it gets hot. That's you're right. still losing all that water. So in California, we've had a series of droughts, and the big joke during the first drought was, let's not flush our toilets, let's uh, let the yellow mellow, flush the brown down. Now we're seeing... Say that again, I dare you. Okay, so I'm happy to say that one again. But now we're seeing all kinds of ways to think about everything from showers to sanitation and do it in a much cleaner way. We're moving way too slowly, but the ideas are finally beginning to percolate up. You know, 
one of the ways I would like to teach people is just keep a bucket in the bathroom and fill it and then explain it to them in a, in a way they can concretely, tangibly see how much water is being wasted. Well, in fact, in my family, my wife's from Nigeria, we routinely take a shower, save the bucket, and use that either for the garden or for dishes and clothing. So we often see that practice that comes from village life in central Nigeria as something that can teach us an important lesson. Well, let's go back to the future. Absolutely. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. That's the original recycling. It but is. How do you, then how do you educate hoteliers that it's, it's, it's in their economic interest, forget environmentally, not to waste that water? Well, I think one of the things that I've seen in work with the Brando and Tetiro and a number of other places is that this is not just about education. It's also about recognizing that you can feel better about your trip by leaving that smaller footprint. And that takes a few leaders to start the process, but it is absolutely a critical criteria for many people I know who travel. They want to go to that sustainable resort. They don't want to go to one where they feel bad about it after they've left. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Amazing people that you meet here. You're not just meeting uh, Fortune 500 CEOs or ministers of tourism or heads of state or former heads of state. Uh, you're also meeting some visionaries who have a few little things to say about the planet we live on, one of whom is my next guest, Chandra Nair, who's the, who's the chairman of the Global Institute for Tomorrow, based in Hong Kong. So, of course, I have to ask the important question, what is that? Uh, the Global Institute uh, for Tomorrow is a pan-Asian think tank that I founded about 12 years ago, and particularly to provide a more balanced view from uh, a more global view about what the world looks like, which, in my view, has been dominated by a Western-centric uh, view of the world. So that's what uh, we, I, I set it up to do. You're, you're basically you're a disruptor. <laughs> yeah, narratives disruptor. I often say when I go to conferences, like people you know, throw around the world disruption around technology. But those who, uh, who talk about disruptive technologies are extremely fearful of narrative disruptors too. As well. Yeah, there's one thing to be disruptive in technology. There's another thing to be disruptive in viewpoint. Yes, right. And you don't get invited to many gigs. <laughs> or it's 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 tailor made. It's it, tailor made. It's tailor made. The, 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 the people who organize the conferences don't want disruptive narratives. They want disruptive technologies fed as Kool Aid to a captive audience. But when you have an audience like we have here at the WTTC, you're dealing with global leaders. You're dealing with CEOs of billion dollar corporations who didn't get those jobs because of just sitting around waiting, they had to be innovative, they had to make some changes. Uh, they had to make some changes within the businesses they are in, uh, but my experience has been, and I come from a business background, by the right. way, I, I led the Asia's largest consulting firm in environment, management, risk, etc. Uh, but then, after a while, they become captive to their business models, and I think this is the biggest challenge they have, and I think many uh, good people uh, become captive to that, and they become intellectually dishonest, particularly in, in relation to the existential questions we have, and so my job so, is well, to give me, kind give me of an example that. that as it applies to travel. Well, for instance, and I think uh, we've heard it today from several people, including the ex-president, uh, the population of the world will be 10 to 12 billion. Most of them will live in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, six, uh, 60 per 6 billion of them. If but you're, the, not, you're not questioning those figures. I'm not questioning those figures. Right. I'm questioning the, the assumption and the belief that they have a right 
to consumption, either through travel, etc., uh, that are taken for granted in Western economies. And in my first book, Consumptionomics, I argue that this is absolute denial of the re reality of the implications of that form levels of consumption, be it travel, whatever. So well, let, let me ask you this that question. Is foolhardy. Let's go back to the numbers. Yeah. It's one thing to say you'll have 1.4 billion people cross an international border this year, That's and right. we don't question that figure. It's real. But that doesn't mean that another 10 are going, uh, because they may not even have access to water. You're they may not have access to electricity. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, we forget that. We forget that, but, you know, there's still, I mean, this is the point I try and make. Uh, people talk about digitization, etc. True, and people talk of the advances of technology. In at least my part of the world, I would argue, the most important technology that is needed is a toilets and water supply systems. So I, I have often argued cheekily that the interconnection we need is sewers and water supply systems, and then we can bury the fiber optics in the sewer systems. <laughs> what you're basically saying is we've got to go back to the basics. Uh, that would be innovation, yes. And I can talk about well, a true whole innovation. Of, true At innovation. the end of the day, true innovation is back to the basics. It's back to the basics. And uh, I think the, the, the fascination with digitization has essentially seduced people into not understanding where the, where the basics are. And in my second book, The Sustainable State, I argue that the basic obligation of the state in the large developing parts of the world is to provide the basics, what I call the rights to life, which is, starts with food supply and secure, secure food and supply, secure uh, and safe food supply, uh, basic housing. Uh, just to give you one data point, 600 million Indians do not have what is called a permanent structure of home, uh, then water and sanitation, electricity, etc. And yet, how many new mobile phone users are added in Absolutely. India every day. Absolutely. So the other data point I use is today there are more, uh, more mobile phones uh, than toilets. So, you know, give me a break. Uh, let's get the... Give and, me a bathroom uh, break. Give me, give me something. Yeah. Uh, but there are more uh, mobile phones. Uh, I've been to, I mean, uh, many parts of Asia, Africa, etc. And I've seen people with mobile phones who don't have a toilet, don't have a proper roof, or a bed to sleep in, and not even proper uh, food. But they have mobile phones on, and and uh, they were looking at Paris Hilton with no clothes on, you know, so we've uh, well, got it upside down. There's that too, <laughs> yeah, and other things. <laughs> but at the same time, that technology, and I hear where you're going, yeah. that technology also allows them to pay their bills on mobile pay. And most of them have no money to pay their bills. I mean, this is their other seduction. So the technology is out, is outdistanced the, their ability. Yeah, well, it's a seduction, again, of a lot of the technology people who say, oh, now we have internet banking, etc. But as the systems around them collapse, these people have no means to even make a livelihood. I mean, I was in India three weeks ago in Maharashtra state, where you know, which is the where the state where the capital of Mumbai is. You travel two hours uh, out of M Mumbai, and there's a drought. Thousands. Oh, no, travel one hour. Yes. I mean, thousands of thousands of farmers have committed suicide. Is it world news? Not at all. Is digital helping them? Not at all. What ne needs to happen is basic, essentially, supply of uh, building water supply systems so that people can irrigate their crops, etc. Then they might have some money to do some internet. Banking. All right, so now devil's advocate question number one. Sure. You know this. The government of India knows this. Mm -hmm. The businesses who are India know this. They're not completely ignorant about it. Where is their incentive to do something about it? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that the businesses do not have an incentive to do this. It's not what businesses do. Businesses provide goods and services that essentially can be procured by those with a disposable income or at, at different levels of the economic. It's the role of the state. My argument, and this is uh, might be of interest to your audience, mainly North American audience, that if the state is weak, which I believe the Indian state is, then it cannot meet its basic obligations, which is to provide the basic needs, and we can go into it. Well, now, it'd be controversial and say, but that's where China works. Let's talk about both India and China here, yes. because the most recent survey of the most polluted cities in the world... Are Indian. 
followed by China. Some Chinese. Yes. But the Chinese strides in removing pollution, air quality, etc. But let's be let's understand. There is no uh, examples in history of nations as large as India developing without essentially having a trade-off between pollution and extraction, etc. So you're painting you're painting a very bleak picture then. Yes, and but there is hope, and this is where it gets controversial. If the state is essentially weak, and I argue, therefore, and even more controversially, the democratic states cannot function effectively in large uh, nation and states like India. And they become autocratic states. Well, they don't have to be. I would argue then that, in a way, China is more democratic than India in terms of the provision of serving the needs of the people. After all, right. we want governance systems that essentially serve basic rights. So until you have that, then in the existential era that we are in, with resource constraints, etc., the state's obligation cannot be met. You need a strong state. I would even argue that in Europe, the states are becoming weaker because of the inability to make decisions, and dare I say, perhaps you would agree that the same in the U.S. I would. Yeah. Now, let's go back to India for a second. You have a weak state. Yeah. India is not investing in other countries. China is. Yes. And from that revenue stream, they can also help to provide for their own people. Well, China is uh, basically provided for its own people, not through uh, foreign investments. It has invested in its own people by essentially printing money and doing it. And, and buying then, American uh, debt. <laughs> and buying American debt, which no one yeah. has a choice. Yeah. Uh, but China has done it over 30, 40 years, unprecedented in human history. No country, no civilization has taken 500 million people out of poverty. No one. So China has done it that way. But through an ability to essentially mobilize the machinery of the state against very clear objectives and setting long-term targets to do that. So you, probably, you know the data as much as I, uh, I do about water supply, electricity, food, literacy. China is all in the 90%. They've done it over 30 years. India is sadly uh, far behind. And me coming of, you know, being of Indian descent, et cetera, it, um, it saddens me it to see that. But now let me take it to one other level, which yeah. you probably don't want to go. I will. If you, uh, well, we're going to go there together <laughs> yeah. whether you like yeah. it or not. Here it comes. You look at this historically. When the state is unable to provide, war follows. Well, historically, it, it ha a war does follow. But I would say in India, uh, what will happen is essentially a disintegration of the state uh, as we know it. Uh, on the other hand, India has created some sense of the Indian identity. I think that is no doubt. You know, when India plays cricket against the Australians... Uh, the country India, stops. The country stops. Everyone feels nationalistic. So I'm not so... I, I don't think there is war. I think what will happen is great social chaos and a huge price. My fear is that the Indian middle class... Or charge more is, for cricket tickets. Uh, it could be. It could be. <laughs> or no one turns up. Yeah. Uh, but what will happen is the chaos. And that, I think, is the biggest problem in, in, in India. Well, a conversation to be continued here at the WTTC. Chandranera, the CEO of the Global Institute for... Tomorrow. And let's hope tomorrow comes. Tomorrow will be here. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My mother, God rest her soul.
I get to meet lots of people here, people who are the the influencers, people who are the uh, the leaders in the travel industry. And one person who I've met before at another event is also here with us. He's the CEO and founder of AgeWave, but most importantly, he speaks to an audience that I think is still being forgotten in our obsession for millennials, and that's the boomers. Ken Dykewalt, welcome. Good to see you again. I'm, I, I have this feel, feeling, and, and hopefully you and I will be on the same page on this, that in the travel industry, as in all industries these days, um, being led by the advertising agencies, whose average age of a media buyer is nine years old, um, they think that the, the, you know, the sun rises and sets just on millennials. And when, when you look at it, my, my observation is that most millennials are sitting at home with a Budweiser hoping that a Heineken shows up. And the Heineken's doesn't show up. So when it comes to travel choices, travel budgets, travel destinations, uh, where they spend their money, uh, I'm not saying we should ignore the millennials, but should we be obsessed with them? Oh, I think we should take them seriously. They're, yeah. they're today and tomorrow's market, and they look great, and they're fun, and they're, they got kind of a joie de vivre, which is terrific. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. But there's a, there's a sort of a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon happening that I don't think the travel industry should miss out on. And that is that because of a variety of forces, people today in their 50s and 60s and 70s have an extraordinary amount of what I'll call time affluence. Let me unpack that a little bit. First of all, as you know, Peter, because we've talked about it, we're in the midst of a longevity revolution. So at the beginning of the 20th century, the life expectation was 47. You said something a couple of years ago. I'm going to interrupt you because I, I've never forgotten it. And, and watch, you'll correct me and tell me I was wrong. But you said that, what, 85% of the people who have ever reached the age of 85 are alive Live today. That's true, but even more interesting because 85 is pretty far up there. Two thirds of all the people who have ever reached 65 in the history of the world are alive today. And so throughout most of history, people didn't age, they died, period. And so, you know, in the 1850s, couples didn't say, gee, dear, how are we going to spend our holiday time in retirement because you weren't going to be alive. Now, what we see is life expectancy is skyrocketing. So, if you're 60 today, for example, the average life expectancy is another 25 years. So to think that you're at the end of your life at 60 is a big mistake. When, when my grandparents turned 60, they were old. When my parents turned 60, they were kind of old. old. Yeah. Today, 60 is not old at all. Today, 60 is kind of middle essence. That's one piece. The second piece is because as you pass your 50th and 60th and 70th birthday, you find yourself freed up from childbearing, most cases, and also freed up from work. All of a sudden, you find yourself the recipient of enormous amounts of let's call it discretionary time, right? So the boomers, for example... That's your time affluence. Yeah, discretionary time. You can do what you want, when you want to do it, and you've also got a lot of free time. So the boomers in the next 20 years, in the United States alone, will have two and a half trillion hours of free time to fill. On top of that, they control about 70 to 75% of all the financial wealth and resources in America. Well, that's you buried the lead right there. Yeah, so <laughs> here you go. It's one thing to go after millennials, but first of all, they have no time to travel and they're broke. On the other hand, <laughs> their moms and dads and grandparents who oftentimes want to take their millennial kids along with them uh, have more time, more money, and here's where it gets even more interesting. They've got a big appetite for adventure and for peak experiences. It used to be that you turned 60 or 65, you wanted to go to Miami Beach or you wanted to do the same thing year after year. Today, people want to go back to school. They want to go on a volunteerism program. They want to give back. They may want to visit their genealogic roots. They may want to fall in love again. They may want to see the Aurora Borealis. They may want to go camping in the Grand Canyon. That, that what you've got is this highly educated, 
enormously sort of driven appetite for peak experiences. And that is going to cause the travel industry to explode over the next couple of decades. It's already exploding. It is. In fact, the travel industry has been growing at uh, twice the rate of the GDP. And uh, so, and as I'm here at this conference, most people realize that it's largely because of these boomers and the, this new generation of what I call people in their third age that are, uh, that are finding that they're going to pour themselves into this stage of their lives and try to have the most fun they can and also try to have the most meaning and purpose they can. They're, looking for, they're not looking to check off their bucket list, yeah, which, right. which is kind of the idea that you're going to be dead soon, so what do you got to do before you get there? They're thinking to themselves, you know what, I'm 62, I'd like to go back to school. I'll take a summer program at Oxford for a month. Or I'd like to help out inner city kids, but maybe in Dominican Republic. Or I'd like to go camping in ways that I've never done before. Let me go on off to Australia. So what they're doing is they're pursuing a long-term dream, but they're adding the travel component. Yes. And the travel industry, good news for them, are become, becoming a little more diverse and a little more interesting. You know, it used to be, you know, people thought of when you got old, you took a cruise. By the way, I've taken cruises. Cruises can be a lot of fun. When my mother turned 80, I wanted to send her on a cruise. And she said, I don't want to be on a ship with a lot of old, old people. people. Yeah, yeah, but if you go on a cruise these days, you're going to see a lot more families. You're going yeah. to see a lot more younger, older people. Yeah, the demos have changed. Yeah, and you know what else, Peter? That a lot of people are traveling with their kids. You know, it's become kind of a cool thing for a 30, 35-year-old to go off on a safari with their parents. We took our kids last year to Africa for our first safari, and we all had a great time. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.